Hi, I'm Kira Deneen. I'm one of the producers of It Happened to Me. I want to take a moment to give a recommendation for another podcast that I produce. It's called The Patient Empowerment Program, and it's hosted by Dr. Stan Crook, a scientist, physician, entrepreneur, the father of antisense technology, and the founder of the Enlorum Foundation. Just like this podcast, the Patient Empowerment Program is building a rare disease community that focuses on nanorare diseases. Interviews feature leading physicians, scientists, biotech experts, rare disease advocates, and touching patient stories. Lessons offer a masterclass on core concepts to understand the basic science behind drug discovery and development. I've learned so much about the cardiovascular system in recent episodes. One of my favorite episodes was our very first one with geneticist Dr. Wendy Chung and rare disease patient advocate, father and actor Luke Rosen about the heartfelt story of his daughter, Susanna, a nano-rare and Lauren patient who is currently receiving a personalized medicine developed just for her. So I'd recommend starting there. Stream the Patient Empowerment Program wherever you're currently listening to It Happened to Me. Just search Patient Empowerment Program and look for our purple and orange logo. You can also go directly to our website, nlorem.org, for direct links. You're listening to It Happened to Me, a rare disease and medical challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is, how do we adapt? That's the focus of It Happened to Me. We help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, hosts Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me. I'm not alone, and neither are you. Welcome, Stephanie Snow Gable. Today, we're going to be talking about Wolfram syndrome, which is a rare recessive genetic condition. For those that don't know, and we're going to get more into it as the episode goes, but Wolfram syndrome is difficult to diagnose, but symptoms can include diabetes, optic nerve atrophy, vision loss, deafness, loss of taste and smell, and urinary and bladder dysfunction. So our co-host, Kathy Gillenhorn, was diagnosed with a variant of this neurodegenerative syndrome. So she's also going to be able to um, be very active in this conversation because she can speak to her own experience. Yes, yes. Stephanie, thank you for being here today. Um, Let's discuss Wolfram, both from your perspective as a parent and your incredible active response, filling a void and creating the Snow Foundation for Wolfram syndrome research. Let's start with the basic. How would you describe Wolfram? You know, that's a great question. I I would describe it as an ultra rare disease. And most people think, oh, it's a rare disease. But in our field, it's in Wolfram syndrome specifically, it's ultra rare. So very few people suffer from this disease. And about 10 years ago, we used to describe Wolfram syndrome as a rare form of diabetes. But within the last 10 years, uh, working with Washington University, some other researchers abroad, it's really just a, a horrible form of neurodegeneration. So it's just a neurodegenerative disease. Now, take us on your Wolfram journey with your daughter. 
Sure. Back in 2010, uh, I have four children. I have three girls and my youngest is a boy. And Raquel, who is my Wolfram child, was diagnosed in 2010 with diabetes. And she was fighting this this diabetic condition for probably a year. My, my nephew has diabetes. So I realized when she was drinking a lot and going through all of the same symptoms, I would take her to the, the doctor and he'd be like, no, she doesn't have it. She doesn't have it. Finally, she got so sick that she did test positive in 2010 for type one diabetes. And about six to nine months later, I took her in for her five-year checkup and they discovered that she had like a wandering eye. So, um, which that wasn't too obscure for me because her, my middle daughter had strabismus. So I took her into the pediatric ophthalmologist and he was looking back and forth and um, just kept staring at her eyes. And as a parent, any parent knows when the doctor goes from one eye to the next eye and doesn't say anything. And then just keeps looking and looking I realized I said, something's wrong. I go, what's up doc? Like, what are you looking at? And he's like, she has a pale optic nerve. And I was like, uh, okay. I go, what, is, what does that mean? And he's like, you know, she could have a tumor in her brain. And, and that's when you just like want to fall off the seat and go, oh my gosh. Or she could have this rare genetic condition. And that is when like literally the whole journey of this started. We, we scanned her brain. Everything was perfectly fine. And then they ended up uh, sending her lab work out to, um, gosh, I think it was overseas in Switzerland or something. And it took three months back in the day to get her genetic test results back. Now it's about a week and a half. So basically 2010 started my whole Wolfram journey of, of what she was Your going doctor even know about Wolfram and, and the rare genetic disease he mentioned with the diabetes in the eye. Well, it's, you know what, I always, I always tell people it was such a rarity. My story is such a rarity because I live in, in St. Louis, Missouri and Washington University School of Medicine was actually doing a little clinic on Wolfram syndrome. And it's just, it's, I always say God placed me perfectly at, uh, in the timeline of we can walk through this timeline. He placed me perfectly on all of these things. It was like an Easter egg hunt. Oh, I'll grab that egg. Oh, okay. Oh, I'll grab that egg. And it just, it all was placed right in front of my face. So this doctor who is actually a world renowned doctor, pediatric ophthalmologist, Dr. Tyson just looked at me and said, this is just so weird because I sit on a board for a doctor, an endocrine doctor named Dr. Alan Permit. And he's doing this small research. He's got about 10 patients from around the world coming in for this disease. And the only reason why I know about it is because he asked me as an ophthalmologist to help him out, you know, um, to be one of the arms, studying arms of this disease. And I was like, out of all the doctors to go to at St. Louis Children's Hospital and for him to realize that her optic nerve was that pale that soon, it just, you know, we were pretty lucky in her diagnosis compared what? to a lot. Incredible story yeah. is truly incredible. And that you live in St. Louis where all of this Wolfram specific research have been starting up is just incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. So many other 
people that have been on long diagnostic odysseys, I think is because they just kind of weren't at the right place at the right time with the right doctor. So it was so great for Raquel to have that timing because if you were seen by somewhere else, if you and your family lived somewhere else, like you probably would have been in a diagnostic odyssey for many years, but that really sped it up for you. So you're saying this is 2010. So how old was Raquel at the time? Like 12 years ago, 13 years ago? She was four. Okay. Her type one diabetic diagnosis, and then close to five years when she was diagnosed with Wolfram syndrome. So I don't know, is that like early to be diagnosed with Wolfram? Like that sounds early to me, but I don't know the community as well as you guys do. It's very early. And it's so funny because when all of this happened, I, I remember sitting with the team because I'm like a go-getter type of mom. And I was like, okay, what are we going to do? What kind of research is being done? And I met with all the doctors and the researchers and they were like excited. And, and I, a friend of mine who was a nurse said, don't take it personally, but this is like their first little specimen. And this yeah. young, beautiful little girl who actually was diagnosed this early because most of them, you know, are diagnosed and they, oh, you've got optic atrophy because of your diabetes. Oh, you've got this, but then all of these other symptoms start happening. And then it's kind of like, you just bounce from specialist to specialist, but they were like, wow, she's the youngest patient diagnosed now here in the States. And and we can actually watch her grow and we can be a part of this journey through Wolfram syndrome with her. So, yeah. Wow. So have they been involved since then? Like that was like, you know, 13 years ago, as we were saying. Um, so this is how your whole journey started. Um, have they been involved since then? Or were they like, I don't know, like probably a clinical trial. That's that's too early, but more of like a natural history study. Like what were they doing at that time so, in St. Louis? Interesting that you ask because when they were looking at Raquel's like genetics, like, okay, we're going to wait and see if she does in fact have Wolfram syndrome, they had their very first clinic. It was like a small mini clinic that Dr. Alan Permit and Tamara Hershey put on at WashU. And from that time that they put this clinic together, um, they had applied for a grant at the NIH to get funding to do like five years of clinics. So they could get a natural history study on this disease. Well, they were denied their funding right around the same time Raquel was diagnosed. And I remember sitting at WashU in this little like cafeteria, you know, feeling completely out of my realm because I I grew up in a sports family. My dad played pro football for many years. My brother played pro baseball for many years. I worked for the LA Rams and then came out here to work for them as a St. Louis Ram, but I did not move back to LA with them. I, I check it out here. So I grew up in this sports world and I'm like sitting around with these doctors and scientists completely out of my league. I took my best friend who was a nurse. I'm like, you need to like translate for me because I don't want so helpful in appointments to bring someone in healthcare. Like, yeah, even in my own experience, it's been helpful to have other members of my family that are a little bit more of like that nursing perspective versus me just in the genetics. So yeah, that's a great idea. So we went and I remember sitting there and they were just devastated. They were excited to meet me and know about Raquel, but they had just been denied their huge grant. And I was like, well, how much do you need to do these clinics? And they're like about 150,000. And so I was like, oh, I'll raise that. Not really even knowing what I was getting myself into, but, and I said, I'm going to try to start a foundation to raise money, but my foundation's international. So it took a lot longer to really get it rolling. But in the first two years, 
the snow foundation raised over three hundred thousand dollars and it it's it kept them going and then when the nih decided to look again at their um, research they saw that washu had partnered with the snow foundation and so they're very big on partnering with patient organizations and they applied for a grant and they i think they got close to five million dollars so that that part that arm of wolfram syndrome the natural history study little mini clinics that took off and that then allowed me as a, a foundation um, CEO to go, okay, now let's try to start raising money for actual research. You know, we, wow. we took care of that part. And now it, then I turned my, my focus on to research and patient advocacy. What a success story in terms of like starting an organization. It sounds like you didn't have a ton of experience before that. And you were kind of like, well, this is my daughter. This is her life. We're going to figure it out, which is just how most rare disease parents start, I think, um, with the natural history study, what did you guys learn from that? Like, does Wolfram show up equally in males and females? Like, were you able to collect that kind of information if, you know, looking at like inheritance patterns and, and that sort of information, like family history? You know, that would, that's a good question. And you'd probably want to pull either Tamara Hershey in. Sure. Know? And we can always throw some links in the show notes for extra information for people listening. And, or Fumi Urano, but it did, um, they, it, it's, it did define the fact that a lot of these patients are different. You know, when I was first, when I, when we were first diagnosed, because I say we, because it's a family thing that you all go through. I remember sitting on my computer at like two in the morning and Googling everything. And there was, there was nothing on the internet, absolutely nothing but hope. after horror story and I remember sitting there and I'm very Christian I love I love my God I love Jesus and I rely on my religion a lot and I remember this huge weight that just came over me and it was like the Holy Spirit talking to me saying you need to start something so no other parent will go through what you're going through I mean I couldn't find a foundation in the world I couldn't find association in the world I couldn't find a help like a patient support group or a family support group it was just it was devastating and then all you learned and all you read was oh they're gonna go blind they're gonna go deaf they're gonna lose their balance they're gonna die between 20 and 30 years old and it was just it was just heart-wrenching there no one knew anything about it so working and doing the natural history study and starting the snow foundation it provided like a safe landing place for a lot of people and and it you know we went from wolfram syndrome one wfs1 to there's wfs2 and then there's wolfram like so just because my daughter was diagnosed with it doesn't mean she's going to lose her hearing and her vision and this they're all these kids are different and that's that's one thing that this this natural um history study came out with is that they're you know they're all different so so interesting about my wolfram um is is a variant of um wolf that is adult presentation uh, adult presentation and a more mild presentation than the childhood and i feel like it's so important that people recognize their range of the spec of the syndrome as well as a range of the symptoms yes and um i i'm just so 
impressed with your story and what you've done. And I feel like you did create a safe landing place for all of the Wolfram community, but you also created a safe landing place for you because I feel like you went from a complete void to something that was rich in activism. So you didn't feel like you were just sitting there. Some, you were doing something. And that it was that empowering. Well, and you know, it's interesting, Kathy, because we we had the very first event at the Dome. And this is when the Rams were still there. And again, I had worked for the Rams for many years. Um, I wasn't currently working for them at that time. I wanted to stay home with my kids. But they rallied around and they helped put this fabulous fundraiser on. And I remember Dr. Permit and I remember Tamara Hershey walking in and I was just talking to, to Dr. Hershey and she had tears in her eyes. And I was like, why are you sad? And she goes, because no one raises money for research like this. No one raises money for natural history study because it's not going to be the cure. And I'm like, well, that's really all we have to work with right now is natural history study. And she's like, and it's just so inspiring that you've got this beautiful celebrity casino night going on and that it's for our, our tiny little disease. So I just felt like, why wouldn't any parent want to go out there and raise money and try to try to do that? But talking to a lot of the researchers and, and doctors, they're like, there's parents that just want to stay under that rock and they want to stay under the rock with their baby and they don't want to have to deal with it. They want to live their life and whatever happens, happens. And he goes, but then you've got parents like you, which was me, who's like, oh, I'm going to move this rock. Even though I can hardly lift it, I'm going to try to move that rock. So it's just, it, I can't judge the parents that don't want to do that. But I think I would have always questioned myself if I just watched my daughter deteriorate and not, I knew there could have been something that I could have done. Well, I thank you on behalf of the entire Wolfram community. It's just so inspiring to see what you've done, how you handled the diagnosis, and uh, how's your daughter handled the diagnosis? You know, she's, it's funny because I deal with a lot of the patients, and I, and I know a lot of patients from around the world, and um, they're just these resilient little spirits that just walk this earth. And, and, and I use my daughter as one because she is pretty much blind now, legally blind. And you, you watch this beautiful little child who was playing sports to the point where then she couldn't see the ball. So you got to pull her out of the, out of playing sports. And she had lots of little friends and then no one asked her to do anything because she had diabetes. So no one wanted her to spend the night because what if she went in a low or what if something happened on my watch? So lost all of her friends. And she had two older sisters who were very involved in high school, had tons of friends. And you, as a parent, you feel so guilty. You're like, okay, my child's not asking to be, to go on sleepovers. She has no friends to go through anything, but she just was like, I'm fine, mom. Like when she started high school, her, her, sister, her second oldest sister was a senior and she was a freshman and she saw Raquel eating lunch by herself. And so my, my daughter, Lauren was like, put a schedule together for friends of hers that would sit with her at lunch. Right. So she didn't have to sit by herself, but then my daughter graduated. So sophomore, junior, senior year, this poor kid just sits by herself at lunch. And it, and she's like, mom, I don't even tell you cause I don't want it to hurt your feelings. And she's like, I'm fine she'll go into a teacher's room and have lunch with the teacher and stuff. And she just 
she doesn't feel sorry for herself. She just goes along this journey. You know, it's kind of like her cross that she has to bear. And, and I try to be as positive as possible around her and, and just say, pray, let's pray, let's pray a lot. And, and, you know, this is just what, you know, God hasn't given to her. Cause I always say, God didn't give this to you, but this is what your life is about. And, and it's something that she's just accepted. She's just a, she's a great, great kid. She sounds so mature too. Like to have that kind of outlook in high school. Like I was just trying to make it through and be like, oh my God, what are people thinking of me? Like kids don't have that outlook in high school. Like that's so mature. No, she's, she, and she's has these two older sisters, like I said, who just had tons of friends over on the weekends and this and that she does have her brother who's a freshman. So she's a senior this year. And my Jack is like 10 times as tall as she is and probably five times as wide as he is. He's a big football player, but he wrestles in football and does track. And so a lot of his friends now will be like, Hey, Cal, Hey, Cal. And she thinks she's big senior. So she, she just is like all seniors ready to be done with high school. Like she wants to move on and, and she's going to attend the, um, the school for the blind in Denver. So she's going to go out for the six month. It's a six month, maybe nine month. If you want to do three extra months, she gets to live in an apartment with another child or not a child. I should say young adult, young adult. Yes. <laughs> for, in for the school for the blind. And it's, they are going to like literally hands-on teach these kids how to live with very um, low vision, completely blind or low vision. So Raquel can kind of see, I mean, she's like 24,000 in her eye and then 23,000 in I think her her um, left eye. So, but she uses a cane, but they're gonna teach her, you know, how you can live on your own, what you can do, where you can go work and stuff like that. So she's really, really excited. It's kind of like her pre-college. Does she have a dog that can help her navigate? She doesn't have a dog and a lot of these, a lot, and she does want one. She wants a German shepherd. And I'm like, why not a lab? She goes, cause I don't think it will bother me with the German shepherd. I'm like, that's, that's true too. But she wants to get through and you, a lot of uh, visually impaired kids have to be independent on their own before they get a dog. They have to be able to tell their dog what to do. And so we're going to, probably hold off another year before we apply to get a, a CNI dog for her. But yeah, she would love to have one. Oh, wow. Stephanie, um, can we talk a little about uh, any possible cures or current trials? And is there any work that can lead to a cure or is it really a delay of the symptoms that we're looking for now? So the cure is probably five to 10 years off. And I, and, and it, and it bothers me because every time we would have a community conference with some of the, the researchers at WashU, they five to 10 years, five to 10 years. And we're like, you said that five years ago, but really the cure is like gene therapy. And that just takes a lot longer. So what they are really working on around the world are, um, compounds that could slow the progression, compounds that could maybe slow the progression of vision loss or, or that could help with diabetes. Um, there is one clinical trial taking place right now, and it has been for about the last three and a half years. It's a, a researcher 
clinician named Dr. Timothy Barrett, and he is in the UK, Birmingham, UK. He is working on a drug, um, testing a drug called valproate acid. And what that drug does, it's, it's, a, it's an already approved drug, FDA approved drug out here. And it helps with like seizure disorders. It helps with uh, migraines, bipolar disorders. And so he's testing that. It's a, um, a double blind placebo clinical trial. And I think he's in his ending year. There's about 67 patients from the UK, Poland, and Spain. And I know, cause I just got back from the UK about six months ago, France is gonna do another clinical trial just on valproate acid and they're gonna test the hearing. They wanna see if that will stop the progression or delay hearing. So that's kind of exciting. I know Dr. Urano did the very first clinical trial on dantrolene here at Washington University. The Snow Foundation helped really- Yes. Yeah, propelled that in and got him going on that. It didn't really work. I think it worked in less severe patients, but the more severe patients, it really it didn't really do anything for Raquel. But it did have some positive, you know, results on some of the less the less severe patients. But you could probably talk to Dr. Urano about that. The exciting news here in the United States is there's a small pharma company called Amelix. And Amelix is going to be starting a clinical trial with about 10 adult patients. They have to be 18 years or older. And that trial is on their drug. It's called AMX0035. Um, it's a, and I got to read it. It's a sodium, sodium phenyl butyrate and toru, I don't even know how to say this, torosodial. You might have to edit that. Kira. <laughs> I mean, it sounds right to me. I don't, I don't know this drug off the top of my head, but. But it's a proof of concept study and it's worked in, in another neurodegenerative disease and they are willing to, to try that with about 10 Wolfram patients. So that's, that's really exciting. Um, and I think, and everybody's going to get the drug. There's not going to be, um, some get it, some don't, and they're all going to be able to just watch for about six months, these, these 10 Wolfram patients um, on this trial. But it seems that there's a lot more of these smaller pharma companies that are willing to try to help some of these smaller rare disease um, patients with something that they've used for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or something. They're like, well, maybe this, maybe this could, could work or help with, with the Wolfram patients. So right now it's, we're kind of, it's downstream, you know what I mean? We're just kind of chasing, you know, what endocrine can help and what can we do for bladder problems? And Raquel's got like seven different specialists and you we kind of have to go around the world and just chase those specialists to help with her, with her symptoms. But, um, I think it's so important to have a team of doctors with a syndrome that manifests itself throughout your system. And that so you are looking globally, just not one at a time. And I think that's so helpful. Now, do you work with the um, Organization of Rare Disorders? So the uh, not, NORD is NORD. It? Yes. For rare disorders. Yes, we actually just, we've been working with them for the last two and a half, three years. COVID kind of threw a, 
a stop in there um, throughout the bad COVID years, but we just finalized our patient registry. So we, the Snow Foundation is the first organization for Wolfram syndrome that has its own patient, global patient registry. We have- Congratulations. Uh, wow. It's very That's exciting. It's very, uh, my, my chief medical officer, Dr. Saad Nasir has been telling us for years, you need to get this going. You need to get this going. But if Um, I worked with another Wolfram mom who's a pediatrician, um, Sarah Gladstone, and then Pat Jubilisco runs our patient advocacy aspect arm of the foundation. And we all worked together and um, worked with Nord and got this up and running. So we just we would just released it maybe four or five months ago. So that's really, really exciting. And they're just now starting to transfer it over into several languages because I said, the majority of the people on our registry are, are not from America. They're they're all international. So yes, we have we definitely have worked with Nord on that. They're great. That's exciting. Stephanie, I'm wondering how does your daughter cope both with your activism and with the fact that um, you had mentioned that she was strong and resilient, but is there any moment with any of the particular symptoms that really took her a while to process and move on from? When she was little, I, I remember my, my brother who played pro baseball and spoke in front of people all of the time, you know, I would have him do a bulk of the interviews because I would just give him a piece of paper and I would dot, okay, this is what you need to say. Because I was just learning about the disease and I didn't want to sound like an idiot. So we worked together in tandem and I kind of used his name to, to market the disease because people would talk to him. They didn't really care about the mom, but they would rather talk to JT Snow. So I was smart about that at the beginning. And it was funny because when we would go do our events, my brother, you know, six, two big guy, and Raquel would come up to like the middle part of his thigh. And when he would talk about the disease and he would say life expectancy is, you know, maybe 30 years of age, he would always cup her little head and he would oh. hand and push her little head into his thigh. So she couldn't hear that. You know what I mean? Like he did, he's like, breaks my heart. I don't want her to hear the fact that she may be thinking at five, six years old, what do you mean I'm only lived to 30? So it was a very difficult situation in the beginning. Like, do we bring her around? It was a difficult um, decision. Do we name it the Gable found Raquel Gable and, and my husband and I were like, no, we don't want to label her. You know, I mean, she's only five or six years old. We do not want to call it her foundation because she might get older and say, why the heck? Did you label me, you know, I don't want people thinking Raquel Gable Wolfram syndrome or rare disease. So we used my maiden name, but she's been around in a lot of the events and has spoken a few times. And it was, it was great. Just the other day, one of the teachers at Lafayette, um, he is, I think the class is a, a biomedical science class. He heard her her pod go off. And so she was testing her blood and he was like curious. He's like, can you come talk to my, my classes? i got three classes I would love for you. And, and she's, she looks like she's 12, even though she's going to be 18. And she's like, sure. And he said, I was so impressed. She talked about having to catheterize and for a 17 year old to stand there and to tell people I have to, I can't go to the bathroom on my own. Every time I go to the bathroom, I have to catheterize and 
And, and a lot of these kids were like, what, you know, are you going to die from this? You know, when you get the younger kids and she's like, I might life expectancy is 40. And I just received the nicest note from this, this teacher. And he even tried to type thank you in braille to Raquel, cause she can read braille. So he looked up, thank you in braille and tried to really pencil it in to see oh it because it wasn't. But so she is really a strong advocate for herself and for her disease. And, and um, we've had conversations about what if I die in my sleep? Like, what if I quit? And she just has such a strong love of God. And, and she's like, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. And she's never really talked about what if I die early? The only time she's ever really wanted to go was when she gets her bad headaches there. It's like trigeminal neuralgia where it's like knife stabbing. And we've been in the hospital where she's like, I, I want to die. I can't deal with it. But we've seemed to really um, manage those headaches really, really well, where she hasn't had an episode like that in pro knock on wood in a couple of years, but oh, wonderful. Yeah. She's just a great advocate for her disease. And I'm hoping she'll go to school and, and, and major in communications because yes. I'm like, really, you could talk to so many people and, and from the time you were four or five of what you expected to the time you're 18 and, and hopefully in your thirties. So mm -hmm. she's, she's remarkable. And how does she feel about what you've done and the activism you've done and out of love for her in so many ways? Does she totally get your foundation and how important it is and how, uh, what a void you filled? She, she does. She's very proud of her mama. You know what I mean? And she, whenever she can throw out, oh, we run a foundation to raise awareness and, and to, to fund research. She's very proud to talk about that. I mean, for the last 10 years, I've missed wedding anniversaries. I've missed birthdays. I've missed certain things from traveling the world to, you know, helping other countries start their associations or putting on meetings for researchers and doctors. There's times where I've been gone during Thanksgiving and, and all my kids are very, very, and my husband are very, very supportive because um, they know without this, you know, what you, they, they know without this, maybe research would have just been halted and we just would not have the resources that we have today. Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just sharing. It's really your family's story. Like certainly Raquel is, is experiencing a lot of this, but as a rare disease parent, um, just all of the advocacy you've done on behalf of the community, like Kathy was saying, um, and just so much advocacy um, and a lot of transparency of just sharing your experience. And I think that really um, resonates with a lot of people. I'm sure it's resonated with Kathy already. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And before we go, I have to ask if there's any advice you'd like to share with our listeners today, anything that they can do when they hear this news that you would recommend? You know, I think it's hard to, to tell someone how they are going to feel. You know, I've talked to so many family members and um, a lot of the parents are like, bawling and they're like, oh, it's a life sentence. And I'm like, it isn't. Your, your, your baby is so young. We don't really know. We don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, you were diagnosed at how old, Kathy, with Wolfram syndrome? Um, I was diagnosed uh, during the, right before the pandemic. So I was 63. 
63 and you've lived a very nice life. You know, I know some, well, from patients. can see where certain things might've been the, uh, genetically connected to Wolfram, but who knows? Right. And, and no one knows. And I am dealing with a, a family and their son is I think eight now and they, they just started their own foundation and, and they've been fabulous with donating towards the snow foundation. We've partnered on French research. Um, and, um, they are like, I've told them, you just enjoy your son. Enjoy. If he can see for 10, 12 years and great. I don't know what to tell you, nor does Dr. Urano or Dr. You know, Barrett. We don't really know what to tell you will exactly happen with your child, but I guess just, you know, a lot of parents, I'm like, follow your heart. If you want to help raise money and you want to start, you know, uh, an arm of a foundation and do it that way, go for it. If you just want to be left alone and just get our updates, there's no judgment. There's absolutely no judgment. I used to get so upset when I first started the foundation because I would be like, how can they not donate money? How could they not even do $10 a month? How could they not support this? And my husband used to say, you know, take yourself out of your shoes and and put yourself if you didn't have a child with a rare disease would we feel this way and i'd be like no because we don't live it so he's taught my husband barkley's taught me a lot too like you gotta you gotta do what's best for you and i think that's the biggest piece of advice do what's best for you and your family follow your heart um but keep believing and keep hoping that that a cure is on the horizon That is just, I think, a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for coming on. We really just appreciate you sharing so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. That's ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact form on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. Again, that's ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would also really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating review on your podcast app, probably Apple or Spotify. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenges community find us. It Happened to Me is created and hosted by Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman. Steve Holsenbach is our media engineer and co-producer. Myself, Kier Deneen from DNA Today, is our marketing lead and co-producer. Ashlyn Anokian is our graphic designer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone and neither are you.